Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 254 A Buddhist Game Designer. In this week's episode, recorded during the 2011 Buddhist Geeks Conference, author and game designer Jane McGonigal explores the incredible history of gaming, as well as the parallels between gaming and Buddhist practice. This is part one of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Well, I am Jane McGonigal, and I thought I would help you out a little bit by representing for you numerically exactly what kind of Buddhist geek that I am. I, I thought a lot about this on the plane ride down, did a lot of numbers, and I came up with 23% Buddhist and 77% geek. I was just doing the math to make sure that add up to 100. That would have been really embarrassing <laughs> if it didn't. So, um, yeah, so on average, I'd say about, I'm about three times as geeky as, as I am Buddhist. Um, uh, my geek credentials are really good. I'm a game designer. That's how I make my living. That's super geeky. Um, I have a PhD, which I earned for studying the impact of games on how we think and act in real life. So that's super duper geeky. And uh, even my husband and I, we have the GPS coordinates of where we met engraved on our wedding rings. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm latitude and he's longitude, so uh, that's really geeky. Um, and then uh, in terms of my Buddhist practice, uh, I discovered uh, Zen Buddhism when I was in graduate school and I was um, very stressed out and lonely and miserable and depressed and anxious, which is, if any of you have been in graduate school, you know that's a typical experience. And my twin sister, Kelly, who you heard this morning, introduced me to Zen Buddhism. And uh, so I started a daily meditation practice. I have literally more than a 1,000 podcasts on my laptop as we speak from series like uh, Buddhist Geeks. And, and, I've, and I've read, you know, probably about, I don't know, 20 books um, on Zen Buddhist practice. So, so I'm getting there. I'm, if, if this is the spectrum, I don't know if I've gone over the tipping point yet. There is a tipping point also for geeks, if you were curious. It usually involves the first time you play World of Warcraft, so I don't know how many of you have cut that. Okay, so I'm here to talk about the idea that awakening is an epic win, and uh, how many of you will now out yourselves as gamers and know what epic win is? Okay, cool, right. So an epic win is when you not just do well, you know, there's a positive outcome, but it's a positive outcome so extraordinary and so unlikely that you never thought it was possible until you were right on the verge of achieving it. So you really shock yourself with what you're capable of. Um, and usually you get to an epic win by failing a lot. Again and again and again and again and again and again. You keep trying and you stay in there and then you achieve this epic win. Um, but I actually am sorry with all apologies to Rohan and, and the great people Buddhist Geeks. This is not the title of my talk. Um, it actually appears in your program. It's a mistake. Sorry. The actual title is that. Uh, awakening is an epic win. Uh, I've never given a talk uh, that, that even included the word Buddhism before, so um, I don't want you to think that I'm super confident up here about to impart to you some great wisdom that is absolutely 100% 
true and awesome. Um, this is just things that I've been thinking about. And actually what I hope is that as I spend most of my time talking about games and the way I see game design, that you will make connections yourselves um, and, and help me figure out if um, Awakening is an epic win. And if we're being really honest, I would say the actual title of the talk is that. Just to really underscore how many questions I have about this idea, three big questions, actually. So those three question marks represent three actual questions. Um, the first question is, do Buddhists and game designers share goals? Okay. Um, and I don't want to leave you in suspense for an hour, so I'll just preview my conclusion now. Uh, I think so. I think that Buddhists and game designers share goals. The second question is, do Buddhists and game designers share methods? Are there similar ways that we go about trying to achieve this goal, whatever the goal might be? Um, and again, to preview the big surprise dramatic ending, um, I think that, that we do. And the last question is, could Buddhists and game designers share practices? Is there some future form of Buddhism that we play? that we play together. And uh, I hope so. That is, that is the conclusion that I will, I hope maybe we'll all reach together by the end of the talk. Okay, um, so just to give you a little bit more um, insight into where we're going, um, this is a book that I, I wrote earlier this year, um, Reality is Broken, which kind of sounds Buddhist a little bit. It has that sort of you know, puzzling sound to it. Um, the subtitle is really important, Why Games Make Us Better and How They Can Change the World. I do look at gaming as a practice, um, as a practice that changes the way that we think, changes the way we approach our real lives, um, and changes the way that we treat other people as well. Um, and, and so that's what I look at. I look at research that supports that idea, as well as games that we can make to intentionally provoke those changes, um, changes for the better. And so the first thing I want to do is uh, share with you a little bit about games and why I think games are a practice in the same way that, that Buddhism can be a practice. So um, this, this doesn't really look like a computer or video game, which we're going to talk a lot about computer and video games. Um, but this is still really important to think about gaming as a practice. These are actually sheep's knuckles that have been carved into uh, dice, ancient gaming dice. So these, these dice are thousands of years old. And, uh, and, and gaming is actually a very old practice, right? Gaming is an ancient tradition. Um, we've been playing games for thousands of years. And uh, I thought I would share with you this pretty interesting story about why we even have games at all. Um, many of you probably are familiar with the, the Greek historian Herodotus. He sort of invented history as we know it. And one of the histories that he wrote was the history of how games were invented. Who made the first game and why did they make it? And what I love about his history is that the story has nothing to do with fun or entertainment, um, which is how we might think of games today. His history of why we have games has to do with suffering. So he writes about an ancient kingdom called Lydia and uh, the, the fact that they were suffering a terrible famine. Uh, it was a famine that lasted for years and years. And uh, people were suffering greatly, as you would imagine, during a famine. And so the king brought together the smartest people in the kingdom and asked them to come up with a solution to the suffering. They couldn't do anything about the famine. Uh, historians and geologists have actually shown now, much more currently, that there was a global climate change that, that was causing the famine. So there was nothing they could do about it. So they decided to invent games. 
they invented dice games, according to Herodotus. And what they did is they taught everybody in the kingdom to play the same games, and then they brought people together and would have them play games for the entire day. And they would get so caught up in the playing of the games that they would forget to eat, which is something, if you know gamers or are a gamer, you know that still happens today. Um, so uh, they would forget to eat, and then they would, they would end the day happy, but not having eaten. And then the next day, they wouldn't play games, but they would eat. And then on the third day, everybody would play games again, and they wouldn't eat. And then on the fourth day, they would eat. And Herodotus writes that they actually passed 18 years this way, surviving the famine, not fighting over resources, and most importantly, not suffering, coming together as a community and having this positive experience. When I first found that story, um, it was while I was in graduate school, and it really resonated with what I felt about games. The games at their heart are about not suffering, about coming together and not suffering, um, which is not something you hear game developers say out loud a lot until I started you know, trying to uh, get people to think about it. So, so gaming is a practice. Uh, it's a social practice, right? This idea that we can come together and, and practice these games together. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's important to know that it's not just the ancient Lydians and it's not just us today. There's a really cool dissertation published earlier this year where a scholar looked at 100 years worth of archaeological excavations in the Middle Eastern region of the world. And he looked at the catalog of all the objects that have been dug up over the past century. And it turned out that one in 10 objects that have been dug up over the past century all over the ancient world were game artifacts, right? So game boards, game tokens, one in 10. Um, and his dissertation is actually asking why we've ignored the centrality of play in these ancient kingdoms for so long. Um, but digging up uh, objects just like this. And then the other thing that they found is that the locations of these objects were in really densely populated parts um, of the cities, really the center where people would come and they would shop and they would come together. And so they seemed to have this really gathering effect, right? The game centers were always kind of the center of urban life in these ancient locations. So, so gaming is an ancient practice. It's a social practice. Um, it's a community practice. Now, it's also a practice that we spend a lot of time doing. We practice it a lot today. So right now, as a planet, we actually spend 3 billion hours a week playing online games. I'm mostly interested in, uh, in when it comes to electronic games, the games that are connected to the internet or connected to a network, so mobile phones, PC, console games that are connected. And that's a 3 billion hours a week. That's, that's a lot of time. So it's an ancient practice, it's a social practice, a community practice that we spend a lot of time doing, and um, there are a lot of us practicing it. So when I first started tracking gamers around the world a few years ago, this was the number I came up with, more than 500 million people globally who spend at least an hour a day playing online games. That's a lot, a lot of practitioners, and you can kind of see where on the map that, that these folks are, are practicing. So just in the past couple of years, to give you a sense of how many more practitioners we're getting uh, every day. This number's actually bumped up to 800 million global gamers. And you can see in the US, we got another 10 million. But looking over at China, where gaming has really exploded over the last couple of years, they're up 145 million practitioners of gaming. Um, and India has exploded, 96 million now practitioners of gaming. So uh, that's a lot of people involved in this practice. 
Um, particularly in the younger generation, uh, we are moving towards a future in which it seems like everybody will practice gaming. Uh, in the US, currently 99% of boys under 18 and 94% of girls play games regularly. So there's no gender divide anymore with gamers, right, and who practices. For boys, it's on average 13 hours a week, and for girls, an average of eight hours a week. So there's a little bit of an intensity gap. The boys do play more, but virtually everyone plays, which uh, led one uh, famous media critic uh, to say, famously, it's inevitable. Soon we will all be gamers. And I would like to tell you that your time has come, your day has come. If you're not a gamer yet, you are going to become a gamer in the next five minutes. <laughs> we are gonna play a game together. <laughs> and it's gonna be awesome. Because I thought if we're talking about gaming as a practice, well, we should practice it a little bit. Okay, so I'm gonna teach you a game that very few people know how to play. And uh, in fact, I'm pretty sure None of you have played it before. I'll just check. Has anybody ever played massively multiplayer thumb wrestling before? <laughs> Wait a minute. Can I see your name tag? Kiaj Monsef. Oh my God. Would you please stand up? Oh my God. This is very shocking. Uh, I have no idea what you're doing here. This is the current reigning world champion of massively multiplayer thumb wrestling. <laughs> Uh, are you a Buddhist geek? What are you doing here? I, I heard there was going to be a massively multiplayer thumb wrestling event here in Roseland, and uh, I came to defend my title. Oh my gosh. Well, that is really just up the ante a little bit. Okay, well, why don't you join me on stage to help, help me teach uh, people, um, and maybe I could uh, implore you to come as well. My to say I am very impressed. I am very impressed. So let me just unpack for you a little bit. Uh, well, let's find out. <laughs> so let me unpack for you a little bit uh, about how game designers think about game design. Um, so you can start to see maybe uh, how game designers and Buddhists share the same goals, maybe some of the same methods. So um, what, what I think about as a game designer is I think about productivity in a kind of a weird way. We usually don't think of games as being a productive way to spend our time, but it really depends on how you define productive. You know, what is it that you actually want to produce more of? So um, I have a set of four things that I try to produce when I create games, and, uh, and, and let's see how we did with this playing this game together. Uh, so the first is positive emotion, right? Games produce a lot of positive emotion, a lot of uh, excitement and uh, joy and that sort of thing. And I would have to say, based on the smiles and the laughters and the energy level that I saw, I would give a check that massively multiplayer thumb wrestling produce a little bit of positive emotion. Uh, game designers also think about strengthening relationships. So did we do any good relationship work here? Well, since this is a geeky Buddhist geeks conference, I can share with you a little science hack. Game designers like to use science, build in a little bit of proven scientifically backed activities into their games. So many of you are probably familiar with oxytocin, which is the, the hormone chemical in the body that makes us like other people more, makes us more trusting of them, make us feel bonded to them. When we have high levels of oxytocin, we're more likely to help somebody else. And uh, one of the fastest ways to 
increase the oxytocin in your bloodstream is to hold somebody else's hand for six seconds. So uh, we were all just holding hands for way more than six seconds, which means if you met somebody and you kind of wanted to ask them for a favor or something at this conference, <laughs> this is a really good time in the next hour to, <laughs> to do that. Okay, so we, we strengthened our relationships a little bit. We got oxytocin going. Uh, meaning is something that we think about a lot as game designers. You know, again, games we often think of as being trivial, you know, maybe a waste of time. But gamers are very interested in meaning. Um, they're interested in the sense of having a, a heroic purpose, of, of being a part of something that is bigger than themselves, right? So that they, that they can see their humble role that they play in some grander scheme. And you see that with games that involve you in massively multiplayer communities, so there are millions of you playing together, or that have um, these really awe-inspiring environments. A lot of video games are um, very similar to cathedrals or sanctuaries and how they're designed to create goosebumps and choke you up and make you feel small in, in the, the, these vast architectures. One of the things that I think is kind of meaningful about massively multiplayer thumb wrestling is that right now there are only about 25,000 people in the world who uh, know how to play this game. And so now it's up to you if you would like to be sacred guardians of this secret and protect it, you can do that. You're one of the few who know. Or maybe you will choose to pass it on and share and teach others and see about spreading this uh, to a larger community. That's how the meaning you find in that is up to you. And then finally, accomplishment. We know gamers, and this is something that, you know, when my sister and I talk about Buddhism and is it like gaming and is, are gamers sort of on the path to awakening, this is the one that is really the stickiest, I think, um, and maybe is, is the least like Buddhist practice, which is the idea of accomplishment, you know, the sense of pride when you learn something new and when you master it, you know, but I think there is accomplishment in Buddhism in that we have to learn something new and we have to master new skills so that we can actually do the practice. So let's see if we actually got some accomplishment here. How many of you successfully participated in this practice, the Masculine Play Thumb Wrestling? All right. Well done. That's great. So we have some accomplishment. How many of you are like me? I never win either thumb. Let's say, all right. Good job. You are now accomplished massively multiplayer thumb wrestles and that you successfully completed a game together. So well done. There are only 25,000 of you on the planet. That's pretty impressive. Um, how many of you were able to win one thumb? Nice. All right. You guys are now master massively multiplayer thumb wrestlers. So wear that badge of honor pride. Did any brave soul manage to win two thumbs? Wow. So you guys are legendary master, massively multiplayer thumb wrestlers. I was going to ask if anybody beat Kiosh so we could crown a new world champion, but you won both thumbs again. All right. I guess I'll see. Where's our next stop? I'll have to see you for the next... Uh, 2012, you'll come back and defend your title. Okay, so that's how game designers think about what we're creating in gamers, right? So we're not just trying to make entertainment, we're trying to produce these four things that, that have a, a special role you know, in our lives. If you're trying to remember this, by the way, it spells PERMA, so it's a useful acronym for positive emotions, relationship, meaning, and accomplishment. And uh, there's a great book, if you're really geeky like me and, and want to read more about the science, by the founder of positive psychology, the science of happiness, 
Martin Seligman, has a new book out where he talks about the PERMA framework in relationship to real life and how these four things, positive emotion, relationships, meaning, and accomplishment, are actually what help us lead a life worth living and to be, um, as Ethan might say, decent human beings. And so, um, so that's something that game designers think a lot about. But I thought that you could do a Buddhist read on massively multiplayer thumb wrestling. Um, you know, I think it's a pretty cool game because trying to wrestle two thumbs at once, I think, is kind of like a koan. Like, just live with that for a second. How do you wrestle two thumbs at once? It's kind of a puzzle. And if you actually tried to do it, it's pretty much impossible. And if you were to try it again and again and again, keep trying to wrestle two thumbs at the same time, maybe you would actually get to some mini enlightenment. I think you would. And I also like the fact that the most important thing is not how you do in your individual node, um, but that we were all connected in one big node. Um, and that we were actually, you might have been really focused on the game that you were playing, but if you can actually zoom out and see the bigger picture, what was really happening is that we were all playing together and every one of us in the room was connected to every other in the room. So I think you could also do a kind of a, a fun Buddhist read on that too. Okay, um, so what is it about games that produces PERMA um, and, and, and lets us think about them as possibly ending suffering? Um, well, I'd like to share with you my favorite definition of a game, which has nothing to do with some things that we associate with video or computer games. It's not about graphics or special effects. It's not about points or achievement badges or, um, or even winning. Really, it's that games are unnecessary obstacles that we choose to tackle. And I would add to that, they're unnecessary obstacles that we choose to tackle and the outcome doesn't matter to us, that we are okay with any outcome. So let me give you an example here uh, to sort of see how this definition works. Let's take golf. Golf is a great game to look at as an unnecessary obstacle, right? Yeah, I think you see where I'm going already. So in golf, you have a goal. What's your goal in golf? Get the little ball in the little hole. So imagine you're not playing a game. Imagine this is real life, and you have the goal of getting a little ball in a little hole. How would you achieve this very important goal? You would pick up the ball, and you would walk over to the hole, and you would very carefully put the ball in your hole. You'd be like, yeah, I did it. I'm so productive. And maybe you would like make a machine that would bring all the balls to you and just drop them in the hole for you, and that would be great. And that's, that what, we do, that's what we do in real life, right? We try and make everything easier. But in games, we try and make everything harder, right? So even though our goal is to get a little ball in a little hole, we do something really stupid. We, we stand really far away from the hole, which is very not useful for, for trying to get in the hole. And then to make it worse, we, for some reason, decide to use a stick to aim the ball. I mean, it'd be a lot easier if we could at least just like throw it or something. So we put these two big obstacles in the way of the goal. And then what's funny is as you start to get good at getting a little ball in a little hole standing really far away with a big stick, you don't just celebrate how good you are at that now. Instead, you make it harder. You start putting sand traps and obstacles and hazards. And, and the better you get, the harder you make it, right? So that's the definition of a game. That's, that's how we know we have the heart of a game. It's something that you want to be challenging for no good reason, right? And what is it that we like about that? You know, we like that it provokes curiosity. You know, oh, can I do that? I, I kind of want to try. I want to see if I can do that. I've never tried that before. And it provokes a sense of mastery or learning, right? We have the chance to get good at something that we were really bad at. We had no idea how to do it. And we get better over time. 
And usually these obstacles are social in nature. We can watch other people tackle them and we can learn from them. We can share ideas and we can kind of work together to get better at it. And then over time, as a community, we actually do get better at it together. So imagine how bad golf players were when they just invented golf, right? Compared to how good someone like Tiger Woods is today, sort of collectively move forward our understanding of this game. So when you think about it that way, one good way to describe games is that playing games is hard work, right? So we think of work as usually you know, the opposite of play. But in fact, playing games is hard work. And one idea that I'd just like to throw out here for the future of Buddhism and games is that games might be a very interesting working meditation because we are working when we play games. Um, so let's fast forward to computer and video games. Here's a great unnecessary obstacle that many people are tackling today. This game's Angry Birds, if you don't know it. There have been more than 200 million downloads of this game to different people, and on average, three people play each download. So we're talking about 600 million people who have played this game in the past year. I mean, that's, talk about the number of people you could possibly reach sneaking a little compassion into a game. And this is, I, okay, you will probably think I'm going too far here, but this game, there is a little bit of compassion involved. So for those of you who played, you might see where I'm going here. There are these poor birds, and they are angry. <laughs> because these pigs have stolen their little baby eggs. And your job is to uh, basically obliterate the pigs, <laughs> which is not very Buddhist. But because these poor little birds, and they're so sad, and they're angry, and you're going to get in there, and, uh, and you're going to help them out. OK. Well, you could see how you could make an even more compassionate version of that. But, 600 million people playing this game, uh, doing a little bit of hard work in their spare time. So imagine Angry Birds, the working meditation. I'm just throwing ideas out here. I don't actually have a good solution to that. Just you know, think about it. Uh, Farmville. Farmville's great. Farmville's actually a game where you can go to any other player's farm. So Angry Birds is just my birds on my phone, your birds on your phone. In Farmville, if you're playing and I'm playing, we can go to each other's farms. So Farmville maxed out at 132 million players all playing in the same virtual world. Now that is the most number of people we've ever had playing the same game at the same time in the history of humanity. Um, so you know, thinking about the scale of people that we can reach and engage, um, this is really where it's at. And Farmville's interesting because it's a game where you help other people, right? Um, the fundamental game mechanic, it's a social game, and you have to go to other people's, your friends' farms, and you have to feed their chickens for them and water their crops for them and give them nails to build their barn, right? This whole sort of barnstorming that happens in these games. So it's actually, you know, it's all about helping and cooperation. Then there are games like World of Warcraft, which, um, which are really interesting in terms of how, hard, how much hard work they are. Um, the average World of Warcraft player spends 22 hours a week playing this game, so basically a part-time job. And what's, what's interesting is it takes, on average, 500 hours to reach level 80, which is where, if you ask any WoW player, they'll tell you that's where the fun really starts. So this is a game where you have to play for 500 hours before the fun starts. That's crazy. That's really crazy. And you have to think about why that is. Um, it's because of the, the essential nature of gameplay, that what we're actually there for is 
to be engaged in hard work and to be striving to make ourselves better, right? That's what's going on in these games. Uh, it kind of makes you think of the old Noel Coward saying, uh, the, the dramatist Noel Coward. He said that work is more fun than fun. Um, and what's really going on when these play these games, tackling these obstacles, is that we are wholeheartedly engaging with difficult challenges with work. You know, but why is work more fun than fun? Oh, no, first some more geeky numbers for you. If you add up all of the time that we've spent playing just World of Warcraft, for example, it's 5.93 million years. Well, we can put that number in, in context. 5.93 million years ago, the first human ancestors stood up. So by that measure, players have been tackling unnecessary obstacles in Azeroth for as long as we've been walking the Earth. And it's not just that game. You can actually think about other games in, in this framework. <laughs> uh, I've, I've, I've contributed at least a year to the Halo years, I want to say, and, and, and probably a year and a half to Rock Band, um, which I'm very proud of. And you know, the reason why I made this visualization um, is because I do think that the games we play together do change us as a society um, and maybe make us better prepared to survive the future. You know, I'm not saying that we evolve genetically, gamers have different DNA. But what I'm saying is that as a species, when we have 800 million people spending an hour a day playing online games, and we have 600 million people playing the same game, um, it does sort of change our makeup as a society and what we're capable of. Okay, but why are we spending so much time tackling unnecessary obstacles? I mean, why does this engage us more than anything else? And one of the things I was thinking about in preparing this talk was, you know, how hard it is even for myself to keep a daily meditation practice. And when I have that spare time, what, what do I want to do? You know, what I want to do is I want to engage. The 600 million people picking up their phones to play five minutes of Angry Birds, they could easily meditate in those five minutes. But instead, they decide to tackle this little task, this little work. And what is it about wanting to engage in hard work? And by the way, I should say, I think meditation is hard work, and I think the practice is hard work, but we don't necessarily communicate that to others. Particularly when you see somebody meditating, pictures of meditation, it looks like you're kind of passive, and it looks like you're opting out. It looks, doesn't look like actually what we know, what we feel, how engaging it is, and how focused you have to be. Um, that's one of the, Rohan's gonna talk about how the aesthetics of meditation is broken. I actually think one of the things that we could do to fix the communication of the aesthetic of meditation is to convey how engaging it is. Because when people are tackling unnecessary obstacles, it's because they wanna be engaged. This is a quote from a theorist of play, a psychologist of play. He's been studying play since before there were uh, video games. Brian Sutton Smith is his name. And he wrote that the opposite of play isn't work, it's depression. And here we get back to the idea of suffering. Um, when you're depressed, there are really two major elements. Uh, the first is that you have a despondent lack of energy, right? You just don't feel like engaging with the world, withdrawal into yourself. And the second is a pessimistic sense of your own capabilities. Uh, you just, you don't think that if you make an effort um, that, that you will, you'll find success. So if you were to reverse these two traits, you would get something like an invigorating rush of energy and an optimistic sense of your own capabilities. And uh, I'm not sure there's a good clinical word for that in psychology. Some of you might be able to suggest one. Flourishing maybe, to use Marty Seligman's term. But I think it's a perfect definition of how we feel when we play a good game. We feel energized, 
You've seen when the energy in the room lifted a lot when we did our massively multiplayer thumb wrestling. Um, and you can see somebody will come home from a long day of work or a long day at school, tired, exhausted. They start playing a game. Suddenly it's four hours, six hours later. It doesn't matter how late it is. They could keep going. They're wide awake. They're ready to go. There's this energizing effect of gameplay. And then there's the optimism that comes with gaming. One thing that I like about gamers is you never see them sit down in front of a game they've never played before and then say something like, I don't know why I'm playing. I'm going to be the worst player ever. I'm totally going to fail this game. Instead, what you see is, ah, new game. I'm totally going to figure this out. I'm going to totally get this. And then you see, once they start to get it, you see, ah, I'm getting good at that. I'm going to be the best player ever. I'm going to get the highest score. I'm going to get the fastest time, right? And you see that sort of leveling up of optimism the more gamers play. And that's actually been measured in labs, that playing games actually makes you measurably more optimistic, even for 24 hours afterwards. So why does this happen? You know, what's going on? Let's geek out a little bit. There's a great word that I think summarizes what's happening in our minds and bodies when we, when we play a game, when we tackle an unnecessary obstacle. The word is eustress, which is the positive form of stress. Sort of think of it as the opposite of distress. Um, we normally we talk about stress as, as the negative kind, as pressure from us externally to do something that we feel like we can't do or we don't want to do. We don't have the time or the resources or the talent or we just don't care. And when we have that kind of external pressure, then there are things that happen in our body, right? Um, our adrenaline can start racing. Our heart rate might go up. Our breathing rate might quicken. The blood flow in our brain might change to really go to the parts of the brain, which Kelly will know the term for and I won't, where sen uh, attention happens, where focus on a threat happens. And, and when we experience these things because of an external pressure, then we have anxiety. We have resentment. We have anger. All these physiological changes. But what's really interesting is when we play a game or we do something in our real lives that we've chosen to do, yes, it's hard, yes, it's a challenge, but we wanted to do it, we have all of these same physiological reactions. You know, our heart rate might go up, our breathing rate might quicken, we might get some adrenaline going, the blood flow is gonna change in our brains. But instead of experiencing it as anxiety or anger or frustration, we experience it as excitement, as motivation, as drive, and we have a positive feeling of the same physiological response. So it's a different story that we're telling ourselves about what's happening in our bodies. Now this is just interesting, obviously, from a Buddhist perspective, that you can take the same physiological set and relatively same activities, you know, doing something that's challenging for us, doing something that we might fail at, and one story tells us to feel angry and frustrated and anxious, and the other story tells us to feel excited and motivated, and we're totally going to win. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, 
self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Stancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.